how much you appreciate someone's help depends on one thing, how much you agree you need it. I was once pulled from the surf by a Huntington Beach lifeguard about two steps before standing up, and his efforts at rescuing me were offensive and embarrassing. Still hearing about my friends 20 years later about the time Baywatch had to come for me. <laughs> Not the case when I was eight years old. I was eight years old. My parents took a year of what we call missionary furlough. It's home service. Missionaries who are supported by churches like ours travel the country and report back to their churches what they've been doing. And that was... That was that particular year. Actually, I was in second grade now that I think about it. And our church, the Central Baptist Church of Denton, Texas, had something they called snow camp. Is that phrase even familiar to anybody here? Snow camp is a camp where you expect to have a great deal of, can you guess? Snow, right? Pretty big deal for a kid who grew up in the desert of Mexico. I'd seen snow in postcards and uh, every year during the uh, Frosty the Snowman cartoon, but that was about it. So when we went to Westcliff, Colorado, to Horn Creek Christian Camp, and we were told, you're kind of in luck, a blizzard blew through here two days ago, and we have more snow than ever. I mean, I was stoked. The drifts were taller than I was. And I don't know what my parents were doing that day, but my parents entrusted me to, if I remember correctly, remember I'm tiny and even more distracted as a seven-year-old than I am now, they entrusted me to, I believe, the assistant principal of our church's little Christian school. My parents had some, something to do, some little ministry obligation, probably teaching, so they couldn't go with me, but he took me tubing. Because I was smart enough, even at seven, having grown up in the desert, I thought skiing looked like a terribly bad idea for me. Strap boards to your feet, go up to the top of the mountain and race down toward the bottom of the hill where an ambulance is waiting. Even at seven, I'm like, I, I, don't, know if the, I don't know if the adopted Mexican kid is ready for that. But tubing, that was simple. You throw yourself on an inner tube and off you go. Had the time of my life. Until it started getting dark, I started looking around for the adults who had brought me along with their own kids and discovered something surprising that, that probably illegal, they had left me there on the hill, all by myself. And it's starting to get dark. Sad scene, right, for young Bruce Garner, seven years of age? Well, I had a choice. I could either sit on the top of the hill and hope for things to work out, or I could try to find my way back to the cabin. What do you think I tried to do? I tried to find my way back to the cabin. I'll let you guess at my success. Minimal, uh, which is to say zero. I got lost in the mountains, and it got really, really dark, and I was starting to look around, and here's literally the thought process in my seven-year-old brain. I won't die of dehydration. <laughs> Plenty of snow. But not at all nutritious, I wonder what I should be doing about food. And too panicked, really, except to walk around, I suppose, probably, now that I've read a little bit about that, probably walked in circles. The only thing that kept me going was knowing at seven years of age, if nobody else comes, my dad will be out here. He'll be looking for me. And eventually, just about the time I was going to really freak out, I heard my voice shouted from over a hill, 
gifts? Dad! Stand still. Don't move. I'm coming. And the hug I got that night, best hug I've ever had. Now, the moment was great, and it lives with me all these years later, about 40 years later, because I knew I needed rescuing. I knew if he didn't come, that was probably going to be the end. Ephesians chapter 2 describes an even greater rescue. You always need your Bible when you come to Cross Point. If you don't have one, please help yourself to, to one in a chair near you. This morning, you'll especially need it because we're going to look at a rescue effort that Paul describes phrase by phrase, line by line. We're being told in this passage how exactly it was that God saved us. It's the most dramatic, intense thing possible. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the setting. Paul is writing from prison, likely in Rome. He's writing to a church that he helped start. He had gone into this pagan city and in one of the most wicked places imaginable, a city completely given over to idolatry, shot through with witchcraft and the practice of magic. Jesus has preached Paul and at tremendous cost to himself. A few people turned to Jesus and a church was born. Now there appear to be churches in this region around a city that is in modern-day Turkey, and Paul is writing to them, this church he knew and loved well. He had spent probably more time with them than any other, and he tells them in simple terms, but beautiful, high, lofty language, Paul seems to extend himself to the utmost under the inspiration of God to tell them, and 2,000 years later, tell us exactly how it was that Jesus rescued us, that God worked in human history, particularly through the resurrection of Jesus, to save us. He starts with something that's hard to believe that most people don't take into account. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And when you read God's Word, sometimes it comes into direct conflict with the way people see the world and understand them, themselves, and this is one of those times. Paul is explaining to the Ephesians exactly how they came to faith, and he gives them a dire, frankly, incredible diagnosis about their spiritual condition. He says, you were what? You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Two words that Paul stacks together as separate but complementary pictures of people's natural spiritual condition. Trespass means that God has set a boundary and you've gone beyond it. Sometimes on, people will put on their property no trespassing, and that's a very simple message. This is the line, don't come past it. You come past this far, we will respond. Paul says to the Ephesians, you were living that way. God had set boundaries and standards, and you had gone past them. You were also dead in your sins. That's a different biblical term, and that means that God sets a standard, and you can't reach it. You miss it. God has a standard for the way He expects and desires and commands the people He made to live, 
And any way you look at it, we're blowing past God's boundaries or we're failing to meet God's standards. And Paul says what that produced in you, what that creates in human beings is spiritual death. And one of the reasons that people don't believe that is their ordinary life doesn't feel like death. Would you agree with that? I mean, how could everybody be spiritually dead apart from God? They look pretty lively, don't they? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Look, here's the paradox. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says you were dead, but you were walking around. You had gone past God's boundaries, you had missed God's standard, that had produced death, but you didn't experience it as death. You were walking in it. In fact, you were following certain things. You were following, he says, the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to the devil. He says, a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, and this is one of the hardest things for people to understand and comes to grips with in the 21st century, because our culture has repeatedly told us through all kinds of different influences, the only things that exist that are real are things you can see. The physical world is all that there is. And Paul says, no, there is an invisible world, a spiritual world beyond what we can see and experience with our five senses that is real, that animates the hearts, the actions, the motives of people. And they walk around in terms of their life with God, dead to Him, insensitive, not responsive to Him, but they're actually quite lively in, on the earth. It says in verse 3, Paul says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh." carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look very carefully, please, at verse 3. Paul says that spiritual death is actually filled with passions and desires that come out of our body and our minds. What's Paul telling us about the ordinary state of people? We're dead, but driven. That's the spiritual reality of people apart from God. We are spiritually dead. We are insensitive to Him. See, the thing about the dead is they don't worry. We worry about the dead. We grieve the dead. We mourn over them when we see their death. But the dead people themselves, they're not troubled. They don't reflect on their own condition. That's why Paul says, before you came to Jesus, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but all that time you were walking along on earth, you were following the desires of spiritual forces that you could not see, and the way you experienced that was passions and desires coming out of your body and mind, and that is the everyday life of practically every person you've met in a nutshell. That's our culture in a few phrases. Our culture has told you since flesh, since matter, this piano, my body, this pulpit, this carpet, the chair you're sitting in, the paper of the Bible you're holding, since those physical realities are all that really exist, the best thing you can do is live for as much pleasure as you can pile into your life now. We've memorialized this with phrases in our culture like this. I bet you can finish this phrase. If it feels good, do it. 
brings pleasure to you, why not? Here's the last moral stand in a culture where everyone is told to understand what they enjoy and to pursue it. Here's the last moral line. As long as nobody else gets hurt, you do whatever you want. See, where there is no recognition of God, that's the culture we create. And not only in our nation, but all across the world, you can see what that has produced. There's not one human family. There's not one friendship. There's not one relationship on the job. There's not one school. There's not a group of singles anywhere that are dating and looking for love and acceptance in the lives of other people where all of those relationships, as different as they are, aren't shot through with fear and selfishness and self-seeking and the constant pursuit of pleasure that maybe this is the person, maybe this is the job, maybe this is the conversation, maybe this is the achievement that will finally bring me satisfaction and peace and I can find rest and people seek it in vain. A large part of our entertainment culture is based on sending reporters and photographers and cameramen to pursue celebrities to show us what their lives are like. You go to the grocery store and you'll see their lives in big graphic pictures on the newsstand. And here's what all of those stories tell you. They have every pleasure imaginable. They look the way you would like to look. They have the money you wish they had. They're having the experiences and the pleasures you wish that you could enjoy. And almost all of those stories give you a bottom line. But they're miserable. And people can't watch enough of those programs. And people can't buy enough of those papers and watch those websites enough. You know what that's based on? Envy. The rest of us who don't have those things, who don't look like that, who don't own those cars, who don't take those vacations, we take a quiet, perverse satisfaction that they have everything we wish we could have and they're still not happy. And quietly people think to themselves, I'm glad they're not happy. She shouldn't be that pretty. He shouldn't have those opportunities. They, couldn't, they shouldn't have that kind of money. It's the strangest thing in the world. The culture is blown wide open telling you simply, pursue as much pleasure as you can possibly get. And oh, by the way, no one who's ever had any of that has found lasting peace through it. What's that look like? Exactly what Paul's describing here. People who have no personal relationship with God, they're insensitive to Him, they're controlled and influenced and motivated by spiritual forces they cannot see and do not understand to fill their minds and bodies up with as much pleasure as possible. And all of that says, all of that means, according to verse 3, all of this disobedience, all of this wickedness makes us something hard to believe. We were by nature. In other words, in the way we are, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice that Paul's including himself and his hearers in two different phrases. This is the way we all were, he says, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. And here he says, like the rest of mankind. And he says something that's difficult for the 21st century American and European mind in particular to believe, that this kind of behavior, this kind of defiance, ignorance, insensitivity to the God who made us exposes us to His wrath, His anger. 
You have to understand what the Bible says or you'll never really worship the God that exists. You'll only worship a God that you create in your own mind. Here's how that normally sounds. I've had people say this to me, well-meaning Christians. They'll encounter verses like this or their lives, their choices, their motives will bump up against clearly what God has written. And when warned of the indignation of God, they'll say something like this, I don't believe in a God who is angry. I believe in a God who is love. And that last part is for very good reason. The Bible explicitly says God is love. So how do you reconcile a God who shows anger, who turns against wickedness with anger, angry indignation. How do you reconcile him with a God who is also love? Well, actually, there's no contradiction there. The capacity to show anger the right way at the right time for the right reason is actually one of the dimensions of being a good person. If you can't show anger for any reason, you're not a very good person. You're not a moral person. Let me explain. You leave church here, you're driving south on Beach Boulevard to have lunch with your friends, and you drive by in your car by yourself on your way to meet them at the restaurant, and you see three young men who appear to be in their 20s, slowly but surely and savagely kicking an old woman to death on the side of Beach Boulevard. Do you drive on? Do you reflect to yourself and say, well, you know, it's the survival of the fittest, and clearly she's no longer fit? She had a good run. Now the younger, fitter members of the species are doing what the younger, fitter members of the species always do. It's the circle of life. You do that? No. Any normal person with a normal operating conscience will do something. They'll roll their window down and scream at them to stop. They'll call for help. They'll grab their cell phone and dial 911 immediately. They'll try to put an end to it. If you can't feel indignation and anger over that kind of injustice, you're not right. Well, good news. God is perfectly right and perfectly righteous, and every single evil, wicked, twisted thing, every bad thing that anyone on earth has ever been capable of is continually in God's sight. He sees and knows it all. Another part of Scripture explains all of reality as naked before the eyes of God. He sees everything. That's why He isn't an angry God, but believe you me, He is perfectly capable of having anger and expressing anger because He's good, because He's right, because He's loving. And this is the thing that God deals with with every human being in our nature because of sin. We are self-willed right down to the core. He made us and loved us to enjoy Him forever. He made in His original creation a perfect condition for mankind, men and women, to enjoy Him for the rest of eternity, and self-chosen sin has wrecked it all. This book, this big book, Scripture, is the story of God's redeeming effort in dealing with all of that nonsense and foolishness and wickedness that set us apart from Him 
So yes, absolutely, when he deals with his creation, along with his love, he feels indignation at what sin has done to us and how we ignore him and defy him. If you just think about life as you actually experience it, you'll immediately understand that God's telling you the truth. That popular culture in telling you that a God who is capable of anger cannot possibly exist simply cannot be true because we deal with the selfishness of human beings every day of our lives. I'll give you for instance. Preschool teachers or anyone who has helped raise a small child know that people in their basic settings, their default settings, are selfish. Can you imagine a young mother telling her preschooler or preschool teachers at home reinforcing this valuable concept? Look, honey, mommy's going to go out and work hard, and then when she's exhausted from work, she's going to go to the grocery store and buy you the best food we can afford to nourish you and prepare you for life, make you the best possible little human being you can possibly be. And I'm going to bring it home, and I'm going to prepare it, and I'm even going to make the presentation fun. We're going to have fun cartoon plates, and it'll be fun. It'll be colorful. It'll be good. You're going to enjoy it. But listen, in this whole process, if anything in the food or the presentation displeases you, here's what I'd like you to do. Just grab the plate and throw it across the room. <laughs> Has any parent ever had that conversation with their child? Do children do it? Everywhere I go, everywhere I go, parents have to try to reason with little people who can't be reasoned with. Every human being in every culture I've ever experienced, and there's been a few now, they all say their first words are no, and another one that's closely related to their interest, which is, see, you know that. And that's just on the human level. That's person to person. Now imagine a God who is infinitely, beautifully perfect, righteous in all of His ways, a righteous judge, we're told in Psalm 711, who feels indignation every day, every moment of time. He sees all of the foolishness and wickedness that the crown of His creation is capable of. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. That's the bad news. People live dead, but driven. That striving, that fear, that self-hatred, that insecurity, all the things that make life difficult for everyone, that make marriage difficult for married people, that make singleness different for single people, that make people who have children wish they could have them, that make people who are blessed with children wish that their kids would be better or they could be better parents, that make companies, frankly, ruthless and employees self-serving so that there's, as one businessman told me when I was still in college, he never forgot... I never forgot this jaded view of the world. He said, most companies pay people just enough so that they won't quit. I thought, my goodness, what a sad way of looking at the world. And 20-some years later, I'm understanding the jaded view. I'm understanding the cynical wisdom of that observation. Why is the world the way that it is? Because people are spiritually dead to the God who made them. 
but in their deadness, they don't act dead, they actually act quite driven, following passions and pleasures and self-motivations at war with God and at war with each other, continually competing, and continually in the middle of all that, even as they fight for all of this, hoping that someone will love them and accept them and tell them they're worthwhile. No wonder life's difficult. No wonder that the professions who deal with people When all of these things become exposed in actual life, no wonder they burn out so quickly. No wonder they have psychological trauma. People are dead but driven. But here finally is the good news in verse 4. Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What does that mean? It means that we were dead but driven, but in that condition, God loved us when we were dead but driven. In that very condition, when we were not seeking Him, when we were in conflict with Him and and with one another, in that moment, God loved us. Look carefully at verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul says that the heart of God's intervention into this mess has one reason. It is, according to verse 4, the great love with which He loved us. God loved dead but driven people. He saw them far from Him. He saw us far from Him because no Christian who understands the gospel has any right whatsoever to be proud. If you've met a self-righteous Christian, if you've met a Christian who is proud of their condition, you've met a contradiction. You've met someone who doesn't get it. Paul says, we were all in this condition, but God intervened. And he did so because of his love, and he treated us, he uses two different words to describe how God loved us. He said, first of all, he was rich in mercy, and later he says, by grace, you've been saved. Those words are closely related, but they're not the same thing. Here's a simple way to think about it. Mercy is what you, mercy is you not getting what you richly deserve. Let me explain. You're flying along, let's pick a freeway where this might be possible. Um, (laughs) Well, I don't know, maybe the 22 at 3 in the morning, okay? You're flying along the 22 about 85 miles an hour, and suddenly you see the beautiful red and blue lights behind you. They pull you over, you find out in that moment you left your driver's license and your other pants. You've carelessly, as you're prone to do, left the registration expire, and candidly, you can't prove that the car you're in belongs to you or you have permission to be in it. What are you expecting at that moment? What do you deserve? Bare minimum, a ticket, if not arrest, if not the car being impounded. And then the officer does something that officers seldom do. He says, you know, Sir, you know, ma'am, just be more careful on your way home. As soon as you get home, start taking care of this stuff. I just want you to be safe. You know what you just received? Mercy. Grace takes it the other way around. 
Mercy prevents you from receiving what you richly deserved, what you've earned. Grace gives you favor, blessing. Grace gives you something that you didn't deserve. I read the amazing story of two men who had just met. One was dying of kidney failure. The other, on the strength of having met him one time, God created one of those five-minute friendships between them, and the healthy stranger gave to the man who was dying one of his kidneys so that he could live. That's grace. He couldn't demand that. That would be insane to say, hey, I'm dying, you're alive, you can spare one, why don't you give me a kidney? You can't do that. That's grace. Paul says God, because of His great love, gave us both. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the key part. He made us alive together with Christ. Paul is thinking in that phrase of the resurrection of Jesus and explaining something to you about it. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, as promised three days later, was for you. Jesus had no obligation to die. He had no obligation to take His life back from the dead as He promised to do. What God was doing was trading your life for the life of His Son. So when Jesus historically rose from a borrowed tomb in Israel about 2,000 years ago, what He was doing was securing eternal life. Securing life beyond death for anyone who would trust Him. It wasn't for Him, it was for you. That's love. See, that's what love does. That's what love is. There's a tremendous amount of confusion in our culture about the word love. Part of it has to do with how we use the word. We talk about loving everything from our kids to pizza. And that muddies the issue. People say, I love pizza. Nobody loves pizza. You want to eat pizza. You desire pizza. It's different. Here's what love is. Love is that act of will that constantly chooses the good of the other person. That's why I say you don't love pizza. You enjoy it, but you don't desire the good of pizza. A mother laying her life down, a single mom laying her life down for her kids one day at a time, with pressures and troubles that they will never understand so that they can have a better life than the life that she has, that's love. A dad popping painkillers because after 25 years of hard labor, his body is failing him, getting up in the middle of the night and getting in a worn-out old car to go to a job that is thankless and poorly paid to provide for his family, that's love. It's continually choosing the good of the other person. God loved humanity. His fallen, insensitive, rebellious, indifferent humanity, He loved us in that way, and what He did was made us alive together with Christ. It says in verse 6, and raised us up with Him, with Jesus, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to look at the verbs. Paul says, God made you alive with Christ and He raised you up with Christ, and He seated you in heavenly places with Christ. What's He driving at this? Because of the triumphant death and resurrection of Jesus, God made you as alive spiritually as Jesus is Himself. We are as alive as Jesus. That's how God saves us. 
Your salvation does not depend upon you. It depends entirely upon what God did in Christ. And what He did was make us as alive as Jesus is, so much so that we're actually raised with Him as if our death had already happened, had already been conquered. Not only that, Paul says from God's point of view, it's as if we're already in heaven, already seated with Christ in heavenly places. How can that possibly be? I don't experience life that way here. No, you don't. From God's point of view, you're as saved as you ever will be. It's that secure. It's that certain. It's that safe. It's as if you were in heaven already. And then verse 7 says that he did all this, my favorite verse in this passage, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's God saying? What's God saying in his word? That God did all of this in the past to keep loving you in the future. The reason from God's point of view, your sins are already forgiven, your resurrection is already secure. It hasn't happened on earth, but from His point of view, it's so secure that you might as well already be in heaven. The reason God is going to take you there into His presence for which you were made is so that He can continue to love you forever in, He says, the coming ages. In other words, God loved you so much, He acted to save you so that He could keep loving you forever. And there's nothing better than that. See, it's an amazing thing about love. Nobody ever tires of it. You may get tired of the way the person you love talks. You may get tired of their jokes. You may get tired of the way they snore beside you speaking only of my marriage at this point. <laughs> but you never get tired of love. If someone genuinely loves you, that never gets old. You can never truly be loved and say, you've loved me enough, I don't want any more love. No. You always enjoy it. It's as good ten years from now as the first day you experienced it. And verse 7 says something spectacular. God acted at a specific time in history to make His family big, to bring people to faith in Jesus so that in all ages, in the home He prepared for us, He could continue to love us. I'll give you a very small, pale example. Almost 25 years ago, I married the most wonderful girl in the world. And I haven't, she knows, God knows, I have been very far from perfect in our relationship, but I really, really do love my wife. And almost 25 years into the marriage, I occasionally catch myself being a little wistful and a little sad because 25 years in, it's beginning to dawn on me that we can't possibly be married forever because I'm getting older. And the sadness comes in, but because, for this simple reason, because I love her so much, I wish it could go on forever. Same thing with my kids. As they start making strides toward independence and start emptying the proverbial nest, we've worked for that, we've parented for that, but now that it's actually starting to happen, it makes you sad. Why? Because we love each other and we wish it could go on forever. Here's the good news of heaven. 
It will. There will be no more separations. There will be no imperfect loving. There will be no selfishness. Because my wife's sitting here, if she's in the room, thinking this all sounds great. I wish we could see more of that in actual practice. (laughs) Theory sounds beautiful. Some execution, some actual doing of it would be nice. In God's love, it's perfect now. You just imperfectly receive it. There will come a time when you see Him as He is, you enjoy Him purely without any sin, without any failure, without any selfishness on your part, and that will go on forever. Why? Because God has made us as alive as Jesus already is. Paul summarizes what he's been saying in these two very well-known verses, by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, this is all God's doing. It's Him giving you something you don't deserve that you're not entitled to. All you have to do is trust Him. That's what He means. By grace, you have been saved through faith. You trust God to give you this. You turn to Him in repentance, and He will. Just to make sure that Ephesians and we are perfectly clear, He says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is why a proud Christian is such a sad, stupid contradiction. How could any Christian, seeing themselves rescued this way, be self-righteous and proud? They have nothing to be proud of. Just like eight-year-old, seven-year-old Bruce, lost in the mountains of Colorado, had nothing to be proud of. Grateful, yes. Proud, no, because I was the dummy that got lost. Nothing to be proud of, no accomplishment in getting lost. The praise, the gratitude go to my father who tramped around in the dark for hours until he found me. That's love. That's what God is doing for us. And he says not only that in verse 10, here's where it meets the road right now in your present day experience until God makes these things that are already true actual breathing realities for you. He says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's that mean? Well, sometimes when we speak of rescuing, what we see on the TV screen are people that are, have been pulled from a cold, angry ocean that nearly killed them. But they've been pulled from the wreckage, and they've got a borrowed blanket thrown over their shoulders, and they're staring frightened into a camera. Refugees, people who were rescued, barely. Paul says your rescue is nothing like that. God is not pulling people from the wreckage who barely made it and are now going to be hollow-eyed for life. No. Paul says in rescuing us, God makes us His workmanship. In other words, His handcrafted masterpiece. And you were made again, you are made new in the image and through the work of Christ so that you could do the good works that God planned for you to do all along. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And here's how good and wise your heavenly Father is. The good works that God has for you were prepared beforehand, long before you sought God. He had good work for you to do that you can now do because you've been rescued and saved. When I tell you about a church that is like ours has been, has been not explosively but steadily growing, 
and seeing people changed. Last week, a young man was baptized who a few months ago was an atheist. Now he often comes to consecutive services because he's trying to get his heart and mind around all this new truth. He's trying to understand fully his new life. When people who have nothing in common except Jesus band together to build orphanages, give money to make this place, this is not the church, we are the church, but these are the places where we meet to worship God and to disciple people. When we give and sacrifice to make this place more welcoming, more comfortable, make space for more people, some of you sacrifice your weekend week after week after week when you could be sitting at home resting, but instead you come and teach other people's kids about the love and the grace of God, and you extend yourself in a hundred different ways that I don't even have time to mention to show people who don't know and may not care that God actually loves them, those are just some of the good works that God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And a church becomes a powerful force for God's good in the world when all these individuals unite under Jesus, we hear His voice together, and we willingly lay down time, talent, money, wisdom, listening, love, care, and compassion, then together we do things that only God can do because those are the good works that God had in mind all along. What am I trying to tell you? That we were rescued in the best possible way. We are loved, we are alive, and we are filled with purpose. In other words, church, we're saved by love. We're saved for life. And make no mistake about it, you have been saved for good, to do good. That's why you're still here. God has given you His salvation fully, but He didn't take you immediately home because He had good works for you to do. He wanted you to rest in His love. He wanted you to set aside your former life of comparison to others and lusting for things that He hasn't given you. He wanted you to be secure in that love in whatever state you're in, single, married, divorced, troubled, tortured, all the different experiences that we bring to God. In all of them, we are saved by His love. He gives us the very life and resurrection of Jesus, and we are saved together to do good until He calls us home when we get to enjoy Him forever. That's how much God loves us. That's how you were rescued. So, you don't have to play the comparison game. You don't have to wonder or worry if anybody loves you. The one who matters most, the one who made you, He does. He loves you. He'll love you forever. And right now, He wants you to do good. Let's pray together. Let me again ask a question to two different groups of people. The first is for you, and you're just not sure that all of this is true for you. You may have understood 20 or 30 percent of what I said. That's okay. I tried to be as clear as possible, but there's a lifetime of God's truth packed into that passage. But if you understand this much, if you understand that you cannot rescue yourself, that your sins have made a separation between you and God, if you understand that much and you're ready to give up and give in to God and ask Him to rescue you, this morning you can be saved. That's what He came to do. He offers His life to a waiting, 
world that will look at the greatest gift of love and refuse it, be indifferent to it. But maybe this morning is your morning, and He's been dealing with you, and you've been wrestling with Him for a long time. Maybe this is the morning you're ready to humble yourself and say, God, I get it. I cannot possibly save myself. Please save me. He did that for me when I was a kid. He's done that for hundreds of people in this church. Maybe until this moment you thought you were one of them, but now you're not so sure. Could I invite you in the name of Jesus to make sure and to say to Jesus, please save me? If you do that, just turn to Him in prayer. It doesn't have to be a rote prayer. There's no magic words that cause God to act. What there is is one humble person saying, Jesus, save me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He will. He has. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. If you do, all I ask is that you would let us know on that connection card so that we can pray for you, help you get started in your first steps of faith with Jesus. And very likely, the vast majority of you who are listening in this service already know Jesus. Could I just ask you, are you resting in that love? Does it show up by you walking out the good works he prepared for you? He had specific good work in mind for you to do from the moment He saved you. You are free, empowered, loved, secure to do it now. If you've been negligent, if you've been putting it off, you've been living for yourself, Christian, come awake. Shake that off. Get rid of that and say, God, I'm here by your love to do the work that you have in mind. Would you talk to Him about it now? Lord, in this silence, I pray that people who need you, who have sinned against you as we all have, who don't yet have your security and your salvation, would turn to you right now and say, Jesus, I believe, be merciful to me, a sinner. I pray, Lord, for those who already know you, help us walk faithfully in the good works you have prepared, and I pray that you would receive this offering generously, faithfully, lovingly given as part of that good work so that we together as individuals and families can show your grace, show your love on this corner and all around the world. In Jesus' name, we pray that you would bless this time of reflection and decision and giving. Amen.